Oh, let's get it. Monday, August 23rd, 2021. Born the Battle, brought to you by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. However you're listening to Born the Battle, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, the player inside the blog. Hope you're having a good week outside of podcast land. What a past week and a half watching the news unfold in Afghanistan. If you haven't heard it, um, I said what I needed. said what I needed to say on last week's bonus episode. And, and I thank the VA, the fact that I have this podcast to work through all the emotions that came with the news and what I was seeing on my timelines, on my social media timelines. Just a reminder, in the show notes of that bonus episode, there are links to every resource I was able to bring up during that that episode. Just like I said in that bonus episode, if you haven't seen it yet, my colleague, Air Force veteran Adam Stump, has a great four-part series on Afghanistan. He had the, he had the foresight to start writing it in July when the pullout was originally announced. Uh, if you get a chance, go to blogs.va.gov, check it out. It's a good read. A lot of resources in there as well. And if you're still processing what's going on over there, uh, check out that episode, that bonus episode, the links associated with it. Heck, you know, shoot me an email if you just want to talk. Podcast at va.gov. Here for you. One new review came into Apple Podcasts. This one is from Pizza Man Dude. Love the name. Uh, Pizza Man Dude, have you ever seen... Pizza Marine Delivery on YouTube. Have you heard this? If you search for Pizza Marine Delivery, it's the first one that pops up on YouTube. You're welcome. Pizza Man Dude says five stars, a dedicated fan. At first, I was a bit skeptical about adding this podcast as I wanted to ensure as I wanted to ensure I would be getting useful information. Not only is the information useful, but essential to veterans. Best veteran podcast ever from an Iraq and Afghanistan vet. I recommend this to all veterans. Man, that's high praise. Uh, thank you for that, Pizza Man Dude. Doing the best I can from inside the machine, brother. Appreciate you writing in. As you already know, I'm looking to respond to that next review. If you haven't yet, please consider writing one for Born the Battle on Apple Podcasts. Doing so does help us climb higher in the algorithms, giving more veterans a better opportunity to discover and listen to the interviews, our benefits breakdown episodes, and hear what's in the news releases. It's also the best way for me to communicate with you. So thank you in advance. Speaking of news releases, got a couple this week. First one was about the expansion of the COVID-19 vaccines among VA employees. Uh, On Friday the 13th, August 13th, Secretary Dennis McDonough did expand his previous COVID-19 vaccine mandate to most employees within the Veterans Health Administration and volunteers and contractors who work in VA medical facilities or who visit VA medical facilities or otherwise come into contact with VA patients and healthcare workers as part of their duties. Under the expanded mandate, employees who will need to be vaccinated include hybrid Title 38 and Title V VA healthcare personnel, 
such as, and these are uh, jobs such as psychologists, pharmacists, social workers, nursing assistants, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, peer specialists, medical support assistants, engineers, housekeepers, and other clinical, administrative, and infrastructure support employees who come into contact with VA patients and healthcare workers. The department's decision is supported by numerous medical organizations, including the American Hospital Association, America Essential Hospitals, and a multi-society group of leading infectious disease societies, in addition to the American Medical Association, American Nurses Association, American College of Physicians, American Academy of Pediatrics, Association of the Association of American Medical Colleges and National Association for Home Care and Hospice also endorse mandating COVID-19 vaccination for healthcare workers. As with the previous mandate, directive effective employees will have eight weeks to provide proof of vaccination to their local VA occupational health office. Okay, next one says for immediate release as the 20th anniversary of 9-11 approaches, the Department of Veterans Affairs is providing those who served awareness of and access to all healthcare services, specifically in areas of mental health and post-traumatic stress care. VA mental health officials said there has been an uptick in veterans seeking help, no kidding, which could increase more as they come to terms with their service as the Afghanistan withdrawal comes to, as the Afghanistan withdrawal comes to completion. Uh, VA's Vantage Point blog, that's blogs.va.gov, that's our, that's, that's my home base, is running a four-part series on Afghanistan featuring veterans' thoughts and perspectives on their time there and the drawdown. That's the specifically the blog I just hit you up with. I just let you know about on the top of the top of the show. The series will run each Tuesday until completed. It's already out there. The series focuses on recognizing warning signs of post-traumatic stress, how spouses, family members, and friends can respond to and assist someone with PTSD, where and how to get help within VA and mobile apps and tips for recovery. The series provides information on vet centers as well, which started after the Vietnam War and addresses the parallels between conflicts and how they can help through readjustment counseling. One thing that we have been seeing, uh, one of the directors, matter of fact, one of the directors of the vet centers did go on record and added, and added that he's seen a willingness among Vietnam veterans to mentor more recent veterans, to, me- to mentor GWAT veterans, uh, Decades removed from their own service, many will still offer advice to younger veterans to not repeat mistakes that they made. About 1.9 million post-9-11 era veterans are enrolled for care. Again, the full four-part series on Afghanistan is available at blogs.va.gov. It's on the front page now. All right, we have a, man, do we have an interview for you this week. This week's guest is a former Army Green Beret and a former CIA agent. He was a part of Detachment A, which was a secret squirrel detachment that operated in East Berlin during the Cold War. Their mission was to slow down the Eastern Bloc armies through sabotage if we ever entered World War III. It's a mission and a story that only recently became unclassified as of about 2014. And our guest, Army veteran James School is here to tell you about it. He's also writing about it so that it is not a story that gets lost to history. Enjoy. James, how do you say your last name? Again, with great difficulty. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's actually uh, a guy once said that uh, he remembered my name by saying stays cool. 
Stays cool. Uh, stays cool is essentially the name. It's Czech. Um, in, a ba- basi- in, in the original language, it basically means curmudgeon. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, you spent a lot of time in the Eastern Bloc. Do you know what Iskra means? <sighs> no, it's, it's sounding Armenian or Turkish. I'm not sure. Croatian. Croatian? Oh, Croatian. Okay. Croatian. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Iskra is uh, an old. I mean, you can find it in Russia, Yugoslavia, the whole, the whole Eastern Bloc. But basically, it, it's uh, Spark. Okay. The name, yeah. So it was actually Lenin's first newspaper. I found out. Well, it would also make a good character name for a novel, Tanner Spark, <laughs> or maybe go. maybe Spark Tanner. I'm not sure. There you uh, go. Yeah. Um, also, a Polish jet, by the way. Um, random factoid. Anyways. Um, well, James, you know, forgive me for, for waiting to get back to you, but I, I had to make sure your story checked out because, I mean, honestly, your your life is more like a Bond movie than real life. Um, I got to admit, I was pretty skeptical in the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I'd actually never gotten that uh, response before, but... Um Perhaps I perhaps I benefited from my previous uh, talks with people that actually knew me and you know, or knew new people who yeah anyway so. yeah no uh, it wasn't until I read Blake Stillwell's blog on We're the Mighty um, I know Blake uh, he's a former guest uh, here on the podcast and my former TA at Syracuse and and he writes some pretty outlandish pieces sometimes um, but I know when he writes journalistically journalistic stories he he does his homework um so reading that uh doing more research not i mean honestly though this this program that you were a part of wasn't even unclassified until 2014 so i mean it's kind of relatively new um james how did this journey begin for you when did you desi- when did you decide to join the army in the first place oh um My father, who who I have come to realize was probably my my biggest guidepost in my life, um, was a combat engineer in World War II, and he um, he never encouraged us to do anything. My my two brothers and and I, Um, but always in the background, his service in the military was there, and I knew it. he was not active duty other than during World War II, and he was a combat engineer. So uh, during Korea, he was actually in Germany building uh, the barracks for most of the American troops to stay there long term. Um, so when he came back to the States, when he came back to the States, he was a livestock broker uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, the what was the world's largest stockyard at the time. And um, he was a reservist. Uh, so every, every year we'd see him go off uh, to training. Uh, so he, he, was, he was my biggest uh, influencer. And he used to bring home patches and sea rations, which I actually enjoyed, unlike most people. Uh, <laughs> And one year, <laughs> and one year he brought home a um, a recruiting brochure uh, for special forces. It was about 1963 or so. I was still pretty young, but um, 
I okay. read that. I read that, and I had already been hooked on, uh, naturally enough, James Bond and, and and other silly things like that. So I I was I was torn as a youngster between going out and being a ranger uh, in the forest, uh, an actual U.S. forest ranger, um, a marine biologist, or joining the army. And, Obviously, I ended up joining the Army. Uh, I did a year in college, but I really couldn't figure out where I was going. I said, well, why not join the military for a while and see what happens? 23 years later, <laughs> I, I, figured out that, <laughs> I figured out that I actually liked the life. So anyway, yeah. Gotcha. So you joined the Army. Um, how did you get into uh, Special Forces and specifically how did you get into this detachment A in Berlin? Like I said, this was a very classified unit at the time. Just recently, I mean, less than a decade ago, 2014, was it was unclassified. How did you make your way to that type of mission in the Army? Uh, by coercion and deceit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I obviously a, a skilled, uh, a necessary skill set for that type of mission. As it turned out, yes. Um, I, I actually joined the army under a uh, four-year um, bonus uh, to go into uh, infantry, uh, airborne infantry. Mm. Uh, under the assumption given me by my uh, recruiter uh, that I would be able to volunteer for special forces at any time, it was not quite the case. Uh, he, Much like many of us, of course, for like every recruiter. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I ended up in the 82nd Airborne. I remember going to the Bose Theater, uh, several hundred other new recruits funneled in from uh, Fort Benning and elsewhere. And the commanding general came to talk to us and he said something that stuck in my mind. And it was, welcome to the 82nd. You're either going to ETS or die here. My father-in-law was 82nd. He's yeah. very proud. He takes a lot of pride in that unit. If, I mean, it was a good airborne infantry unit. I was in the first, the 08. Um, I had a good time, but, that's not where I wanted to be. Um, yeah. So when he said that, I said, this is a personal challenge. Um, taking into account that my recruiter had deceived me, I wrote uh, both um, both senators from the state of Nebraska, uh, the same letter, and forgot all about it. The letter said basically, you know, I'm a soldier. I understand where I'm at, but I was told something that wasn't true, and I want to go to Special Forces. Several months later, um, we were out in the field in an encampment on Fort Bragg, and a jeep comes flying into our camp, and there's a major on board, and I see him. He goes, talks to the company commander, and they call for me. I go over there, and the major says, get in the Jeep. You're coming with me back to Fort Bragg. And my company commander was saying, you can't take him. He's And the major said he's going with us. It turned out the major was from the judge advocate general. Uh, they took me back to Fort Bragg. I got an interview with the division JAG. And 
basically they were impressed by the letter. I guess the fact that I could write was surprising to them because I was a P- PFC at the time. Um, but they said you were okay. that kind of P- you were that PFC that wrote a letter to their senator and it actually worked out. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. they, said, they said, you can take the test. You can try out. If you do it, you can go. If you don't, you're coming back here. So I went. Uh, I took the written test. I took the physical test and everything else. And they said, hey, guess what? Uh, you're in. But you might want to take off that maroon beret when you're walking around uh, Smoke Bomb Hill. Uh, the, the 82nd had just recently gotten the maroon beret, and there was some there was some tension between the red berets and the green berets at the time. So, yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> just gotcha. a small amount. <laughs> yeah. Just a little bit, just yeah. like any, uh, a little bit of rivalry. Um, so how did you make your way to detachment a and what was the mission of detachment? A? How did you find out? Cause not even a lot of special forces, you know, special forces didn't even know about detachment. A. It, w- it was not well known and I knew nothing about it. It was not something that anyone talked about. I mean, we knew about Vietnam. We knew about the first group on Okinawa. We knew about the, the people in Thailand. We knew about, uh, we knew about the group that had gone and gotten Che Guevara in South America, but I never heard anything about Berlin. And I went through training and ended up with the 10 Special Forces Group uh, at Fort Devens at the time. And we deployed into Germany for our annual exercises. So the first um, the first exercise that we went on was 1980, no, excuse me, 1974. And we jumped into Germany and a small team, and we were met on the ground by a group of quote unquote resistance people, you know, role players, mostly Germans, but there was one guy who was the guerrilla chief who spoke fluent German, and he was basically our interface between the guerrilla group and uh, us. Later on, I found out that he was not a German, despite the fact that he spoke fluent German. He was an American in civilian clothes. Wow. And and I talked to him and I said, well, you're one of us. And I said, yeah, but not quite. I said, what do you mean? I said, I'm from Berlin. And I said, we have people in Berlin. And he said, basically, yes, can't talk about it, but, you know, and it went downhill from there. And after that, I said, that's where I want to go. And the subterfuge comes in again when I talk to the Pentagon, uh, to our uh, personnel people. Um, I've forgotten yeah. her name right off the bat, but she was a very famous person at the time. Okay. And I said, I want to go to Berlin. And she said, do you speak German? I had my German qualifications. I wasn't quite up to where I would later be, but she goes, well, I'll see. And shortly thereafter, she said, we've got a slot open. And if you really want it, you can have it. Uh, So four years after I entered the army, I was in Berlin. Wow. So, and, and to set the stage for Berlin for, for, you know, my generation, later generation, it's not the Berlin that you see today. This was cold war era Berlin. This was, you know, Berlin was surrounded by East Germany, which was separate for West Germany um, for those that, that, you know, kind of set the stage of what the mission was and what Berlin was at the time. 
Well, well, you're right. A lot of people don't understand what it was at the time. And I've actually had soldiers come up with an astonished look on their face saying, what, there was a wall in Berlin? <laughs> they, they were not really aware of the Cold War. Um, yeah. So Berlin was what we called an outpost of freedom. It was deep within inside the the communist, the Russian-occupied East Germany. It was a city of about 5 million, but it was divided into four sections, the Russian, French, British, and American section. Um, about 19, this happened, of course, after World War II. And in about 1956, the commander of Berlin uh, realized that to help his planning for an eventual World War III, a possible World War III. Yeah. He needed to have some special assets in town. So he he asked the UCOM, uh, US UCOM commander uh, to place some special forces assets inside the city. So in 1956, a small group of special forces, what would eventually be about 90 uh, troops, were posted to Berlin. And so from 1956 to 1990, they were there uh, to help the commander of Berlin in his mission, but primarily to, in time of war, to cross the wall, cross the border into East Germany and do their best to slow down the Russian advance uh, into West Europe. Okay. Um, it, w- it was a pretty tall task because there were about 25,000 Allied troops inside West Berlin, and we were surrounded by about 1 million Russian and East German troops. Um, but right around Berlin, there was what was called the Ring, which was this extensive railway network. And it was the key for the Russians to move their troops from the east towards West Germany. Okay. And the thinking was that if we could report on that, if we could knock out bridges, if we could derail trains, we could give the Americans in West Germany 24 to 48, maybe even 72 hours of delay. And that's all we were there for, was to give the troops in Western Europe time to meet the Russians uh, if they attacked. Tall, tall order. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, I mean, you look at the you said one million again. Well, I guess what twelve thousand in the city, and you were there to delay the the, the oncoming horde to the rest of Europe. Um, that's an incredible mission. So you were just a, a cell that was just waiting to be greenlit, pretty much. Uh, basically, we we were six six teams of twelve guys. Um, two were supposed to go north, two were to go south to hit the railway, two would remain in the city to sabotage the East Germans and the Russians if they tried to occupy the city. Um, yeah, it, it was a very tall order. I mean, some people saw West Berlin as what would become the world's largest POW camp, but there were those amongst us that said, eh, maybe, maybe we have a chance here. <laughs> And to answer your next question, no, we never really did think it was a suicide mission, <laughs> although although it probably was. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I did do some research after after uh, you initial uh, you initially reached out to me. 
the plan to blow up the, the trains was pretty ingenious with the coal bit. Uh, talk to, talk to us about that, about, you know, okay. Yeah. You were going to sabotage it, but you guys were going to do it in such a ingenious way by letting them blow up their own engines. Well, well, the, the thing about this is it's really important to know history because the Office of Strategic Services and the British uh, Special Operations Executive during World War II came up with the same idea. Uh, we ah. just we just used it. Um, just borrowed it. Good. Actually, actually, it was the Confederates during World War during the Civil War. Uh, they had what were called torpedoes, which were disguised bombs that they would try to put into a ship or a locomotive that would explode when they were heated up. So this is an old tactic that that we brought up to date. And it would have worked up until the point when the East Germans modified their method of fueling their locomotives because they used to sure. go from block coal to pulverized coal. And when they switched over to pulverized coal, it ruined the... It ruined the uh, the explosive, plan. yeah. So we had to think of other ways. Um, blowing railways, blowing bridges, and things like that. Gotcha. Very good. Now, you were with this mission for nine years, uh, blending right into West Berlin. Uh, again, a city right in the heart of East Germany. Uh, you said we had about 12,000 soldiers. You, they had a million. Um, surrounded by Warsaw Pact countries. Um you know, nine years underground, the the articles and many statements from your buddies in this unit, they they stated that Charlie Beckwith, um, the godfather of Delta Force, the Green Berets, the, the great Charlie Beckwith, um, and the godfather of the Navy SEALs, uh, they came and and started their special forces units after watching you all. Um, how did that go down? And where did you get your training from that they got? Um, the Navy guy is... Um Marchenko, who wrote uh, Red Cell. Um, gotcha. About 1974, um, terrorism had started to rear its ugly head in Europe. Um, Germans were undergoing a lot of um, attacks by the Red Army faction and the Badermeinhof gang. And of course, uh, the Israelis suffered from the Palestinian attacks. Um, and hijackings. Uh, the British, of course, were going through their uh, troubles with the IRA in Ireland, but also in Europe, uh, the IRA was attacking British assets. So the American commander said, hey, you know, we don't have anything um, to really handle this. Uh, the counter skyjacking, airplane hijacking, counterterrorism type stuff. What the um, Iran hostage crisis would would be a couple, you know, would would be pretty followed pretty quickly after that, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so about 1974, they called on the unit to say, um, "Can you can you come up with anything that that would handle this?" And the unit submitted basically an op plan for um, counterterrorism, um, specifically airplane hijackings. So in 1974, 1975, the unit started to ramp up uh, for the counterterrorism mission. Um, 
a number of our guys trained with the British SAS, um, the Special Air Service, uh, you, and brought their t- tactics and skills to the unit. We also trained with the German uh, Border Police, the GSG-9, which was the German counter-terrorist unit that was created after the Munich um, debacle. And we had some input from the Israelis. Uh, so we started to build up our <clears throat> we started to build up our capabilities about 1975. Yeah, and uh, we got the attention of the Army back in Washington, and they said, okay, you're you're going to be the UCOM counterterrorist element. And so the unit was designated uh, 1977 as UCOM's counterterrorism element. And as you mentioned, um, the Iran uh, hostage taking took place in 1979. Charlie Beckwith uh, had also had similar thoughts about setting up a counterterrorism unit. And he was given the green light about 1977, I believe. And uh, he was looking for uh, inspiration, input. And he visited, of course, the the British. um, And then he came to the unit, uh, our unit, visited, watched the training, saw our training facilities that we had built. And he took copies of every training document that we had put together. (laughs) 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 So you met Troy Beckwith. He came down and and he was there when you were there. Yeah. And he he took all that stuff back to the States. Uh, Marchenko came... A little bit later, it was about 1981. I did not meet him, but SEAL Team 6 was set up about that time. Wow. Um, Yeah. Um, You know, this is some next level Bond stuff. Uh, You know, again, it harkens back to the OSS back in World War II. Um, It's just incredible. Uh, Do you think that there's embedded cell units like Detachment A now? What do you think? You think in Iran, Russia, Maybe some neighboring countries like Latvia, Moldova, Romania, Vietnam. Are you you talking about Americans? Yeah. Now, do you think do you think that we have a a sort of detachment A like cell? I'm still Um, I'm still obligated. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, never mind. By Um, my non disclosure agreement. Gotcha. Gotcha. If I I mean, and your and your educated guest, do you think it's more of a is it it more CIA or or are there still military units that do this? The CIA is, with the exception of Vietnam, Laos, um, and early on in the Afghan-Iraq wars, uh, has really kind of started to pull out of paramilitary operations. So they still have the paramilitary capabilities, but yeah. they're relying more and more on uh, special operations uh, forces Very to well. do, the, do the work. And I'm speaking from open source intelligence, so I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make that very clear. Yeah. Let's make that very clear. Um, how long? Okay, so Detachment A operated from 56 to, to 1990. Um, when did you get out of Detachment A? Were you there when the wall fell? Um, I was actually there twice. I was there from 77, and I left shortly after we participated in the Iran mission. Um and then I came wow. back. Uh, I came back in 1984 and left about six months before the wall came down. But wow, um, 
I received a telephone call from a very good friend of mine who had also served in Berlin uh, on the 9th of November, 1989. He said, turn on CNN. And so I turned on CNN and there's the wall coming down. The next day I was on a Pan Am flight flying back to Berlin and was on the ground on the 10th of November to watch what was going on. So um, in a way I was there, but uh, I was not in the unit at the time. You weren't on active orders, but you definitely came to see that history because, I mean, it was so much part of your history in the military. Oh, absolutely. Um, But I I was still in the military. I just kind of took leave from my unit in uh, Virginia and went over. Yeah, because that's I mean, for you, that's so it was so personal, you know, because you you spent so much time over there. Uh, Total strength at any one time, uh, you said, was about how many people? About uh, up until about 1984, it was 90. Uh, yeah. uh, after after that, it went up to about 120. Uh, wow. And I, I, I put together a fairly exhaustive list. And, and from what I can tell, a total of maybe 900 soldiers served in the unit from 1956 to 1990. Quite a few. It's, in, it's incredible. Um, yeah. Do you guys have any reunions? Do you guys get together? We do. As a matter of fact, we had one several weeks ago. Oh yeah, how was it? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't as big as the last one because I think COVID. But sure. one of one of the guys observed and said, "Well, you know, if things keep going like they do, pretty soon we'll be able to have these reunions in a telephone booth." <laughs> 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 we 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 keep we keep losing too many good people. Yeah, absolutely, hundred yeah. um, percent. So this unit has been so secret, Detachment A. That other special forces didn't even know this existed. Uh, again, I've, I've said it many times. It was un, finally unclassified in, in 2014. What made you, James, to decide that to say, hey, you know, folks need to know this stuff. You know, I didn't know about this. You reached out to me. Um, how? What made you start doing this? Well, there were, a, there were a lot of different things. For one thing, you know, I saw books like um, Charlie Beckwith's book on Delta, and he talks about um, he talks about the Iran raid, and of course, Marchenko's books on the SEALs. Uh, the SEALs have, have produced many more books <laughs> than the Army has on their unit, but I won't go there. No, um, no, don't, you don't have to. You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we were actually at a reunion uh, in about 2013, and someone said, we need to document the history uh, because the Army would never do it. Uh, the Army had destroyed or lost, quote unquote, many of the records of the unit. And, and so basically... Somebody pointed at me and said, he knows how to write. No, I had written a book. I had written a history book. And the guy said, he's written a book. Uh, And I said, okay, I'll take this on. So it was sort of a a cumulative effort. And I said, you know, the unit had been disbanded in 1990. It was already 20 years almost. Um, You know, there was no more Cold War. There is now, but there wasn't then. Uh, so I said, you know, this doesn't... And it's a different type of Cold War now. This, I mean, it, This is true. Yeah. Uh, so I said, you know, this makes sense. So I started to put it together, and I interviewed um, about 65 people. Uh, I got as many of the documents as I could get. Um, 
what what the military and the government would release to me, which was not a hell of a lot. So um, did you did you start writing this? Did you start writing this book, compiling this, telling this story before it became unclassified, or right shortly after? Uh, actually, before um, I'm, I have become uh, a historian um, and an author, sort of by accident. Um, so I was always interested in Detachment A, and I kept a lot of information on it, not classified, but I kept information. And so when it came around to be time to start writing the book, I, I had a starting place. Um, you know, I had worked on two teams in the unit. I was part of the operations center, and I had seen a lot of the documents, which have now gone missing. Um so I was able mm. to put together a lot of the information. And then I started talking to people. You know, I put together uh, the origin of the unit, how it came about. I found some good documents on that at the, uh, the Army History Center, uh, a few at the National Archives, uh, plus my interviews with some of the very early members of the unit, um, uh, several that were there in 1956, uh, was able to put together a lot of it. Uh, wow. Other interviews from people in the 70s and uh, 60s even, um, and the 1980s, of course, that was fairly easy. The people that were most difficult were the people yeah. in the, from the 60s because they were convinced that they could not talk to me because they had signed their non-disclosure agreement. And one funny incident, I, I, I called a guy and said, hey, so-and-so told me that you might want to be able to tell me about your time in detachment A. And he said, uh, no, I can't talk to you. And he hung up on me. Uh, he was convinced that, that it was <laughs> so classified. that and, yeah. and I'm trying to explain it. So there's a procedure for this. I write the thing and I take it to the Pentagon and they approve it or redact everything. Uh, they didn't want to hear about it. But the funny part was about six months later, I get a call from the same guy who had hung up on me. He said, I hear you're writing a book. <laughs> I want to talk to you. Said, okay. Uh, anyway. So there was. And you're like, uh, you, I called you six months. <laughs> there was a lot awesome. of that going on. So, so did you stay in special forces after detachment? A? Yeah. Um, basically, it was special forces from from the moment I left the 82nd until I retired. Um, gotcha. When I left, when I when I left Berlin the second time in 1989, I went back to the states and joined a different unit, um, which was considered and still is to be a special mission unit, um, but. I'm not going to really talk about that. And I spent I spent another seven years with them before I retired, uh, including you know, gotcha. some very interesting was, places. Gotcha. Was that more of a, a Delta Force type of unit? Um, it was more of an enabler. Okay. You have to have okay. you have to have somebody to look at things before Delta Force can go in. Okay, so like a recon unit almost. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Total military career was 19 years. Uh, you were medically retired. Uh, you went from 73 to 92. You were medically retired when you got hit with an anti-tank mine, unfortunately. 23 years. Um, Correct. 23 years, excuse me. Excuse I, me. I, I, I got out in 96. <laughs> Matt, oh, you got out in 96? I thought it was 92. My bad. Um, 
uh, math for Marines. Uh, you know, I got it. <laughs> um, uh, I like Marines. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, but that, that tank, uh, mine really badly messed up your leg where you had to get it reconstructed. Um, you told me that it's, it, the, the process was the early predecessor of how, how they fixed up uh, Washington football teams, Alex Smith's uh, leg a couple of years ago. It, um, did you watch the documentary on his recovery? Yeah, I did. Um, and, and it makes me, it makes me grimace every time I see it. Um, no, I, we were in a very, we were in a thin skin vehicle and rolled over a, an old Soviet uh, anti-tank mine. Uh, this was in Somalia and basically disassembled the vehicle and uh, disassembled the four of us that were in it. Uh, one of us was killed. Uh, and I received a very bad uh, leg injury, which shattered my tibia and fibia. And uh, I was medevac back to Walter Reed eventually. And uh, the doctors were totally flummoxed about how to handle this. Uh, they had an external fixator on it, just a simple bar with several rods going through the bones. And they said, yeah, this is not working. Um, how about if we amputate your leg? And I said, I'm not really keen on that. And they said, <laughs> if we can keep it, I'd like to. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, they're going, um, well, you know, it's not really a big deal. We'll give you a, we'll give you a leg for parachuting, one for swimming, one for hiking. And I'm going, great. Now I can see myself wandering around with a rucksack full of legs on my back. Um, not not how I wanted to handle things. Yeah. And, and this um, orthopedic surgeon, uh, she was a major at the time, Kathleen McHale uh, at Walter Reed, um, very talented lady, had been using this device called an Elizaroff device uh, to correct... Um, um, to correct uh, the deficiencies in uh, small children's legs uh, who had been born with, um, I'm not sure what it's called. It's something along the line of spina bifida, but it affects your legs. But it affects the legs. Got you. And uh, she was basically using it to break the legs, straighten them, and then reset them with this device. And she came up and she said, you know, I've been looking at your case and I've got an idea. <laughs> and um, I'd like to try it out on you. And I go, what is it? And she said, well, we'll put this thing on. Not sure how long it'll take. Any Anywhere from probably around 18 months. Um, but basically put the bones together and then spread because I had about this much bone that was actually about three inches of bone that was crushed. Uh, so wow. my leg would have been extremely short, put the legs together. Um, they will fuse and then pull them apart and it's sort of like saltwater taffy and we'll see how it works. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Like, do I have a choice? Yeah. Do I have a choice? Yeah. And um, so it worked. Um, I drank as much nutriment and milk as I could possibly get. And 
About six months later, I was in a walking cast. And a year later, almost to the day, I was in Sarajevo. I'm not sure that's a good thing, but that was deploying. <laughs> okay, so you were able to come be 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 effective within a year. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, she, yeah. she went on to become the uh, chief of orthopedics at Walter Reed, and she's still working like, as a doctor with children. So quite quite sounds, quite the doctor. Sounds like a sounds like a good choice for <laughs> to be a head of orthopedics. Well, I, I could figure something like that out. I was I was very happy with the results. So. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. No, <clears throat> you know, you, 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 so you had the second career as a CIA spook, uh, as a, I, I'm going to say spook. Uh, I don't know what else to call it. Um, field operations officer. Uh, you've been a field operations, a field officer, a historian uh, and a writer after that. Uh, you've written a couple of fiction and nonfiction books on military history, uh, particularly with uh, like the super secretive dark arts makes sense uh, type, type of stuff, type of bond, type of Jack Ryan type stuff. Um, was most of the ground research during your time, you know, for these books, was most of the research done as your time as a field op- officer for the CIA because you went to all these different countries or was it done after you retired from the CIA or was it, was it a mixture of both? It's pretty much a mixture of both. Obviously, the, the book about Berlin was, you know, a lot of that was based on my time there. I wrote I wrote a history about so- Southern Africa, but um, – Little known campaign that took place in World War One between South Africa and the German colony of uh, Southwest Africa. Um, that was based on research I had done uh, while I was living in Namibia um, as part of the agency. Um, gotcha. I've done another one on Lawrence of Arabia that was basically based on a lifelong study of him um, and visiting Jordan several times. But the the fiction books I've written uh, are based on actual events, which I have fictionalized to protect the the guilty parties, (laughs) so to speak. (laughs) But a lot of that, a lot of that is based on my military career Um, and the countries I visited while in the military. Talk to me about the process of getting that cleared through the through the Department of Defense to the Pentagon. I know there's a process. Um, I know there's there's been other some other books on on special forces, um, you know, and they always talk about this clearance process. Um, what was it like for you? How did that? How did you go about doing that? Well, the, the process itself is called pre-publication review. And if you have had a security clearance or signed a non, non-disclosure gov- agreement with the government, <clears throat> you're obligated to submit your uh, manuscript for review, whether it's a nonfiction book or a fiction book, if it concerns the U.S. military. And in my case, because I served with the Army and in the CIA, I'm obligated for anything that kind of touches on those two areas. Now, if I wanted to write a cookbook, that's not necessary. Um, but yeah. <laughs> cookbooks for green berets. <laughs> well, then you then you're Book. going into then you're going into <laughs> nebulous territory. Um, <laughs> the CLT manual for uh, how to train your dog actually is one that you would have to clear. Um, <laughs> freaking me out, dude. <laughs> 
It's, it's true. Um, um, so if you don't submit your book, uh, you're subject to have your book, um, your profits, your royalties from the book ceased, as happened to a couple of people uh, wow. that wrote books of, uh, about their time with bin Laden. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, either they were given bad legal advice or they decided to disregard it disregard it completely yeah. um in which case i really don't have much sympathy for them um <laughs> sure but just don't do that don't yeah. do that yeah yeah so i initially started submitting my books to department of defense because that was who i served with when i was in the army obviously um but then more recently, I decided that I would submit my books to the CIA because they were the last uh, classified agency I served with. And they both, they have an agreement that, that if an agency book covers something about the military, they're supposed to share and they, they do a joint clearance process. So that, that's really cool. But yeah. uh, it, it's a very lengthy process. My, my book on Special Forces Berlin took 15 months. Um, and wow. I was at the end of about 13 months, I was starting to get a bit upset and I was calling the, the people at the Pentagon about once a week, asking me questions, asking them questions about when it would come through. And they would, they would always say, you know, it's just going to be a while longer. We don't have control over all the other people that we have to talk with. And yeah. I said, okay. And one time she goes, you know, we really don't see a whole lot of books from Army Special Forces. Do you know what that is? And I said, well, you know, the motto of Special Forces is quiet professionals. And for the most part, we, we try to follow through on that. And, and the only reason I had written a book on Berlin was because the unit had been disbanded and it's been over 20 years. Yeah. Um, and she goes, yeah, okay, I understand that. But you know those Navy SEALs? They really write a lot of books. I said, how many? How many books have they written? And she goes, since 2001, over 200. <laughs> I'm going, wait a minute. <laughs> Quite professional. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And, yeah. And, oh, the and, rivalry. The rivalry yeah. still exists. I like to see yeah, like The to rivalry see does. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and since then, you know, I, I've, I've learned that um, the... Part of uh, BUDS training, the basic SEAL course, part of the training is they, they give you a, a one-week course on uh, how to get an agent and how to promote your book. And, and quite often, the, the greeting on the compound uh, in uh, San Diego is, hey, how's that book deal going? <laughs> But those are all, those are all rumors, and, and they might maybe uh, service oriented. I'm not sure. <laughs> I think it might be. I think it might be. Um, how do you keep a publisher happy during that time while you're getting your stuff cleared? Um, make sure you have a good publisher, and make <laughs> sure make sure you make them understand what what is required. Um, I've been very lucky. I'm working with Casemate, uh, which is a a publisher out of Philadelphia. They've also got offices in the UK. Um, they do military publishing quite a bit, and they mm. realize that if they're working with a military author, that the pre-publication review is part of the deal. So, um, you know, uh, 15 months for the Special Forces Berlin book, um, 
it can vary. One of my novels was cleared in 12 days. So, oh, wow. Uh, it, it just depends. You know, being a, being a CIA um, intelligence officer uh, down there, you know, being a field operations officer, uh, it seems like it was tailor-made based on your previous experience in the military. Is there a difference between the two or were they pretty similar? There are parallels, but there are quite a few differences. Um, my military career was based on a team concept. Um, Special Forces works in 12-man teams, although we would sometimes break down. And often you might work on your own. Uh, my later work towards the end of my career was very much... Uh, solo operations, but I would come back uh, to a team. Um, the agency, obviously, and I was not working with uh, special projects. It was not the military side of the house. It was the traditional okay. intelligence collection. The agency works very much on a personal solo operator. Uh, you, you might be in a station that is made up of a chief and a number of uh, operational collectors, but it's very much you're on your own doing your own thing. And that, that for me was the biggest difference. It's a team concept in the army and in the agency, it's pretty much you're on your own son. Uh, and that's what they expect you to do. Very good. And you have to operate. Very you have to rely on yourself very much so, whether it be in the administrative side of the house or the operational side of the house when you're out working in the field. You're you're very much working on your own. Interesting. Very good. Very good. Um, what do you like writing more, fiction or nonfiction? Because you've written both. Um, nonfiction requires more discipline uh, because... I really have to work at, for me anyway, I really have to work at ensuring that everything I write meshes with the facts as they happen yeah. on the ground as far as I can uh, to be able to- You have to, to get that, that that journalistic integrity part of the, of the nonfiction. Exactly. Uh, footnoting, uh, putting in references, making sure that what you're- For example, when I wrote uh, some of the incidents about the Berlin book, um, I could not rely on one person's story. Uh, I had to go back and say, hey, your teammate said this. What's your version? And often yeah. it was three or four people that would uh, talk about it before I could put together a story. Um, that doesn't, yeah, in, in, yeah. Journalism, in, in journalism, they always talk about you, you have to have at least two sources right. to have it right. be. Yeah. So very good. Very good. So the non-fiction uh, fiction, you can pretty well go with the flow, you know, but um, I, I, I try to hold to um, believability. I don't want the reader to have to suspend their disbelief too often. Uh, so I, I try to follow the facts as much as possible. I try to so, integrate so history into my books. So, yeah. So fiction based on, on real life events, that sort of thing. No, it's, it's not fantasy land. This is, this is kind of based in fact. Um, Very much so. So which, so which one do you, do you like writing more? Oh, you did ask that question. Didn't you? 
<laughs> I mean, it's great they explain what, I, I, how you write each one. That's that is very important. But which one do you which one do you enjoy writing? Uh, I think I enjoy the fiction more. Um, one one thing I found with nonfiction is when I'm writing history, I tend to write narrative. Uh, nonfiction. Mm. I try to tell a story instead of just relating facts and figures. Uh, so I was not transi- I was not transitioning from nonfiction to fiction. I had been writing fiction before, uh, just never yeah. published anything. So I was coming back to it and using both disciplines now to write a story that I wanted to tell. So yeah. Uh, it's, so your style, your style kind of already lends itself towards fiction. So it sounds like you enjoy that better. I do. I do. A yeah, long way of saying good. the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when did, uh, when did you publish your first book? Um, good question. <laughs> <laughs> it's looking, and for the, for those that are listening to the audio version of this podcast, um, he's looking at his book right now. Uh, I mean, give us a rough date. Was it in the nineties? Uh, the first book was actually published in 2014. Um, oh, 2014. Okay. Yeah. 2014. Okay. Um, I had published, um, several articles prior to that, uh, some scholarly journal, historical journals, um, Gotcha. But, uh, my first book was 2014. Because you know, we talk about this a lot, uh, much like music, and, and we've had Na- Nashville songwriter Jonathan Kingham uh, on recently on the podcast, and he talked about this. Uh, and and if, you, if you get a chance, go, you know, if you're listening to this, go check out that, that interview. It's a great interview. Has a little concert at the end. It's good stuff. Uh, but many writers, many songwriters, many artists, uh, they talk about the digital media and how it's changed the game. Um, it's prevented like, you know, Jonathan talked about it as in it prevented, it prevents the next Metallica, the next Stephen King, the next Tom Clancy. You don't have those Uber names anymore, but it's created an avenue where it's an easier time making a, a maybe a more modest career. Uh, do you think that's true with the age of digital publishing or do you have a different take on it? The difference today with digital media is that I think publishers are now more reliant on their writers to do self-promotion rather than to do it themselves. Um, There are lots of opportunities to promote your book, promote your work, but by the same token, the digital universe has made it much easier for other people to publish. And there's a hell of a lot more competition out there now than there was before. and it makes it more difficult to get published by a traditional house. Uh, you can do your own self-publishing, um, which I've chosen not to do. Um, but it it has really opened up the field uh, to every everyone. In a way, it makes it more democratic, but in another way, it makes it a lot more difficult. Absolutely right. And, and, um, and your your podcast, I'm going to give you a compliment here. Uh, your podcast um, hits a lot of the veterans. Um, you you promote a lot of the former service members, um, whether it be in music yes, or, or writing or whether they be government officials. And it goes out and it hits the right audience that 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 these people need to be heard by. So. It's it's a valuable contribution, but it's also again very competitive. Uh, just I'm happy to tell your story, help tell your story, <laughs> sir. Hundred percent, hundred percent. 
James, what's what's one thing that you learned during your time in the military that you apply to what you do today? One thing I, I never paid attention to was the admonition not to volunteer for anything. Um, because if I hadn't volunteered for anything, I wouldn't be where it was now. Um, so what I learned is basically... There are, there are a number of things I could go on to, but volunteering is, is one thing. is basically, you know, put your best foot forward. Uh, if you never say anything, nobody will ever look at you. Nobody will ever pick you. So you, you have to put yourself out there. And the other thing is rely on your teammates. Uh, don't try to do everything yourself. Um, I learned as a team leader, um, uh, I was a, a team leader a couple of times um, that you cannot do everything yourself. And if you do not rely on your people, if you do not allow your people to succeed, you will not succeed either. So it's very much a teamwork yeah. operation. 100%. Um, James, is there, is there a nonprofit or a veteran nonprofit or a veteran in the in the community whom you've worked with or you've had an experience with that you'd like to mention? The National Museum of the U.S. Army. I'm uh, I'm a volunteer down there, and I, I guide people through through the museum. Uh, I also donate to the museum, but it's not really you know it's about history. It's about preserving history. It's not about the soldiers. Um, helping soldiers individually. The one organization that I really work with is the Green Beret Foundation. Um, It's basically families of uh, special forces people and other special operations units. Um, It it keys in on helping um, veterans who have been injured or families who have lost their they're a gold star person and it's a very yeah. good organization. It has scholarships for the children of uh, deceased service members. And I, I really like to work with that one. So the Green Beret Foundation is definitely a good one. Close to the heart yeah. on that one. Well, very much so. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, it's good that you're a docent at the museum. I can, you know, I, I really need to connect with them. I know it's, it's a big thing that they came out for the, I mean, the Marine Corps museum when it came out was huge. And it's, I'm sure, I'm sure that, uh, you know, the members of detachment a are happy that you're also a docent there as well to make sure that you guys are in that history. You know, you're, you're able to lend, you know, your experience to the museum and let them know that detachment a existed. I'm thinking about this because the, the museum is very much oriented, not so much on the units, but on the individuals. Um, okay. It, it starts out just before the revolution and carries on until the present day and it's split up into different segments of our history. And then there is one section that's basically the soldier and uh, the community. Um, So it it shows all the soldiers, the equipment they used, where they fought, the things they did. And then in one section, it shows how how this has benefited or helped um, the community as a whole. It's a very well done museum. 
Yeah, um, no, I know. I know the army was waiting for, it, especially when the Marine Corps Museum came out. They were all waiting for their for their own museum, and I really need to connect with them and and do an episode on that because uh, again, well, it was, I, I go ahead. I've seen both. I actually i li- I like the um, army museum much better than the Marine Museum. <laughs> I, you know, I'm biased, but that's, uh, that's extremely biased, um, sir. You are extremely biased. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, How dare you? <laughs> I know, I know you being a Marine and everything. Actually, I like the artifacts in the in the in the Marine Corps Museum, the the Archibald Henderson sword, John Philip Sousa's too, like the the little things like that. So I'm I'm excited to go see the Army Museum to see what they have as well. Though, Um, again, you you have a much better opinion right now than I do because I've only been to one. Yeah. So like I said, I'm prejudiced, but you know one of one of my favorite one of my favorite photos from my time in the in the army is a picture of me on a purple beach in Kismayo, Somalia, looking out over the water, 6.30 in the morning, and the Marine amphibs are coming ashore um, to occupy Kismayo. This is during the, the Operation Restore Hope. And yeah. I, took the, I took that picture and I gave a picture, I gave a copy of it to Lieutenant General Johnston, who is the Marine commander on the ground. But I worked a lot with the Marines while I was in the Army, probably more so than I did the, the Army. But, um, you know, I, I enjoyed working <laughs> with them. Um, I think the difference between the two, two museums is the Marine Museum is very much oriented the Marine Museum is very much oriented on campaigns and the Army Museum is more yeah. oriented on the individual soldier. Very good. Very good. Well, I can't wait. Like I said, I can't wait to see both. Um, you have a better opinion than me and I do, but I'm sure that my bias will stand be that as it may. I'm glad, I'm glad that the, both museums exist. Um, James, is there anything that I've missed or haven't asked that you think is important to share? There, there probably is. <laughs> I can't think of any. I, I, I stand by what I said before. I think your podcast does great things for the Veterans Administration, and I appreciate your work. Well, I appreciate that, sir. Um, would you have maybe a, a parting shot for anybody that might be listening to this and is thinking about maybe? Um, what I would like to say is that um, I have been involved or associated with the VA, I should probably rephrase that and say the VA has helped me out uh, quite a bit since my retirement from the military and after my retirement from the agency. And I know there's been some issues with the VA around the country. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to the VA in Washington, D.C. It's a very good hospital. Um, they have a lot of cooperation from the Washington Medical Center. And the people I've seen there are, are stellar in their abilities to help veterans and reach out, and, and especially right now in the time of COVID. Um, they also have a satellite office down at Fort Belvoir, which is very good. Um, so I, I think... Um, I think of anything I would like to say is very much uh, a big thank you to the VA for the help they've given me over, over the past years. And I look forward to continuing to work with them as much as possible. Very good. Well, well, well thank you for that, James. Thank you for coming on. 
Um, I think this whole section of history is, is begging to be told more. Um, and thank you for helping tell it. And thank you for having me on, Tanner. I really appreciate it. Anytime. We served our country like those before us. You know, it was a dangerous era. All of Vietnam was dangerous. The carnage of war left an indelible mark on me. We came back and built lives. As time went on, we faced new challenges and found support to handle them. I went to the VA, talked to my doctor. I started doing groups. I started doing one-on-one -on -one counseling. At maketheconnection.net, you can hear our stories and find tools and services available to you. I want to thank James for contacting us, coming on, and letting us know about such a unique mission in military history, and for his patience in getting his episode out. Took a bit. You can find more about James on his author's bio on Amazon.com. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is from our VA Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our digital media team honors a veteran on all of our social media platforms and with a blog on blogs.va.gov. You can nominate the veteran in your life by sending in a short write-up and about five photos and send it to newmedia at va.gov. Tom Rice was born in August of 1921 in Coronado, California. After his sophomore year of college, he volunteered for the Army in 1943. He became a paratrooper at Camp Tacoa when he joined the 101st Airborne Division and deployed to Great Britain in 1944. On June 5th of 44, Rice's company equipped a Douglas C-47 aircraft with machine guns, ammunition, mortars, and radio equipment, jumped into Normandy. Like many paratroopers that day, Rice's stick was initially separated upon landing, blown everywhere. If you've seen Bannon Brothers, you get it. Once Rice found the other paratroopers, they secured the roads in Contien, France. Actually, a civilian couple in a French farmhouse gave them ammunition and directions. After the battle, the 101st Airborne Division returned to England and trained for Operation Market Garden. At 1.30 p.m. on September 17, 1944, they parachuted into the Netherlands and began moving through Holland toward the Ardennes region of Belgium. Rice also fought in the Battle of the Bulge, where a German sniper shot him twice. He recovered in Belgium and was honorably discharged on December 21st, 1945. Rice returned to California and taught social sciences and history. He had five children, and he also wrote and published his book, Trial by Combat, a personal account of his wartime experience. Currently, Rice remains a risk taker. In 2019, in remembrance of the 75th anniversary of D-Day, he again parachuted into Normandy at age 97. Days later, he parachuted into the Netherlands to commemorate the 75th anniversary of Operation Market Garden. Army veteran Tom Rice, thank you for your service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a future Born the Battle Veteran of the Week so we can all learn their story, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, 
pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song, and was written by Marine veteran Mark Milkilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Have a great day. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. Firefight bullets fly day and night brain. Simplify till we're down another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Point, click, pull the trigger to the tune of falling brass. Russian-made bullet in my bag Raining down lead Punching that clock Get them boys, I'm laying down Cover machine gunner Bullets fly, they in my brain Simplify, do or die Another campaign Here we go, lock and load Oh, 331, lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one when we were in Berlin, we actually had a very Irish-American um, member of the unit uh, who had his birthday very close to St. Patrick's Day. And we decided to ambush him, so to speak. And throughout the, throughout the night, we plied him with alcohol. And um, before too long, he, he was shall we say, um, euthanized, but not dead. (laughs) (laughs) You're very descriptive. I like this. And so one thing led to another, and somebody remembered that they had some green uh, dye. And um, we, we proceeded to shave him. And then immerse him in a large vat of green dye. And obviously he was going to be this color for several days. But um, And this was all taking place within the unit day room, what we thought was a pretty well-contained disaster. Uh, but in actuality, as these things happen, the containment wall broke. And... and <laughs> And he woke up and escaped without any clothes, a brilliant green in color, ran across the compound in the center of Berlin, past the gate guards, who were too stupefied and astounded to do anything, (laughs) and made his way to his favorite watering hole, which was a bar down the street. Walks into the bar, no clothes, green, walks up to the bar and orders a beer. 
whereupon most of the local clientele left. (laughs) (laughs) Mind you, you're in a unit where you're supposed to be the most clandestine unit in the world. Well, he was in disguise. (laughs) So there was nothing for us to do but to join him. And help help him celebrate the rest of his birthday. 